Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Once you slice them open and uh, extract their fluids, they're terrorists. I was planning on that anyway. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian. Today's episode is Return to Ashes, our third episode on 2013's Metal Gear Rising Revengeance. We've worked through the prologue and met most of the cast, and now we can get rolling with the main story. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Meryl marries, we know the fate of Master Kazuhira Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. Pick up the story three weeks later, after Raiden has been reassembled with some new parts, thanks to Doctor, who has officially joined the team. He's got a new hand, new jaw, and an eye patch where Sam cut him, giving him a very solidus look. His new body will now be able to refuel itself if he can absorb the nanomachines and electrolytes from other cyborgs. This is the Zandatsu technique we discussed in our opening episode. Also discussed was these new robot parts, meaning a new heads-up display for Raiden going forward, shedding the MGS-4 skin. Raiden himself is aboard a stealth drone that looks a lot like the X-Men's Blackbird, and Raiden is inserted into Abkhazia, similar to how Naked Snake infiltrated Selino Yarsk the second time for Operation Snake Eater. The mission this time also finds us on the fringes of the former Soviet Union. Abkhazia has just been overthrown by Russian extremist Andrei Dolzaev, who has seized the capital city of Sukhumi with the help of Desperado Enforcement, which we know is linked to Sundowner and Sam from this game's intro. The local government has now hired Raiden and Maverick Security to help even up the odds. With Maverick's operational focus fully behind Raiden, he is inserted onto the beach outside Sukhumi to begin his infiltration. There's a quick intro fight here against the cyborgs to brush up on your Zandatsu skills before getting some Ethics 101 chat about PMCs. And cyborgs are still human. Real thinking people. Way less risk of collateral damage than your typical UAV strike. And don't forget the PR angle. Nations start playing Frankenstein with their troops and the public goes nuts. PMCs, on the other hand, are off the ethical radar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they still don't even count PMCs in official death tolls. With SOP out of the picture, private militaries needed a new edge on the market. We also get some details about the fallout following the fall of SOP. The humans who were under the system were deeply damaged afterwards, and many would subject themselves to cyborg upgrades. But more so, abolishing SOP didn't dissolve all the PMCs in the world. It just led to a change in the times. The PMCs choosing a new kind of business built on cyborgs and UGs, which are unmanned gears. Speaking of not eradicating the SOP world, we get our first encounters with geckos in this game as they patrol the city center. 
you'll also encounter various cyborgs holding civilians hostage who you can stealth and liberate with some speed and silence. Or you can just ninja run and hack away and try not to kill the civvies in the process. Anything you want to say about these intro maps? Uh, I like the I like the the bigness of like the city area, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's fine. This is um where Blade Wolf kills the other Winds member Kamsin too. This happens in this area, mm-hmm. so just it's supposed yeah, to be right yeah. before Raiden gets there. So right, right. And he's just a- gone rogue. Yeah. And there's also a little bit, I got like a hallway scene vibe as you're approaching Mm -hmm. the Blade Wolf encounter, like uh, Gray Fox and Shadow Moses. Like there's just like a lot of blood on the walls and stuff as you're kind of working your way through. So that leads us into our first big boss fight, the LQ-84I, or more affectionately, Blade Wolf. Blade Wolf, voiced by Michael Beattie. As all the bosses do in this game, they have their own theme songs, and Blade Wolf's theme song is I'm My Own Master Now, which we played you into with this segment. We're not going to do the lyrics because they're... <laughs> <laughs> There's a all, bit of the lyrics in the sound clips. Yeah, so well, I mean, all, all the lyrics of these songs are like... I, I, it's neat. Like, I like the interactive music. I like that they the lyrics are... The songs are legitimately designed for these characters, but they're not... Uh, Bob Dylan, they're not. They're not. Yeah, the, yeah, they're, yeah. they're like reading them out loud would be like embarrassing, honestly. <laughs> no, it very much so. It's it's akin to the lyrics of like Snake Eater, mm. um, you know, eating tree frogs and kind of silly stuff like that. So getting into Blade Wolf's design, he's very similar to Crying Wolf with the more detailed face and head structure with distinctive red eyes and a chainsaw on its tail. He's also called the K-9000, which is a kind of mashup of HAL-9000 from 2001 A Space Odyssey and K-9, which is just a thing we call dogs. Um, There are mass-produced models of the wolf uh, mech that we see called Fenrirs, which you do encounter throughout the game as well. They look slightly different, but they functionally are kind of the same robot. This Blade Wolf is outfitted with a learning AI that advances over the course of the story, building to a climactic moment in the end. Uh, When he was designed, he was fed books and websites to make him literate and super smart, and then researchers who were working on Blade Wolf would have breakfast with him and discuss matters to boost his intelligence. Wolf's design was actually part of the initial concepts of this game back when it was set between Metal Gear Solid's 2 and 4. Blade Wolf was ultimately designed for battle, but as his AI didn't take to brutality like his humans wanted him to, he was abandoned and considered a one-off prototype. 
Prior to the events of this game, Sundowner had recovered Wolf and sent it after Jetstream Sam, who was hanging out in the Denver sewers. During this time, Sam told Wolf to act on its own. Wolf still attacked Sam, but Sam won, saying his free will to fight one out over Wolf's attack imperative. After that, Sam kept him around, and they fought together, forming a pair over time. A lot of this stuff is from the Jetstream Sam DLC, which I didn't get to play, but I don't know if you got a chance to play yes. it, Brian. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts on it? It's better than the Blade Wolf one. They're both fine. They're both so short, it's hard to really have like a strong opinion on them. But yeah, that fight happens, and if it happens in the sewer area, you kind of whip his ass, and then they have like a talk. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> During the Abkhazian coup, Mistral asked for Blade Wolf. She apparently really likes dogs, which who doesn't? Wolf was ordered to attack Raiden if encountered, under threat of memory wipe, setting up the battle we're about to discuss. And just before the coup, Wolf defeats and kills Kamsin before being tricked and detained by Mistral. That fight's fun. He's driving a huge, like a huge mech. Like his whole body is a mech, basically. Mm-hmm. He looks like um either uh it's it's kind of the same design as like a mech warrior guy or like the uh the guys at the end of matrix the, Ma- the third matrix movie but like, he, oh, like oh yeah 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 and yeah blade wolf kills the shit out of them it's great which are basically just mech warrior clones yeah yeah, <laughs> from yeah. The game. yeah getting into the battle properly i will admit this was the first tough boss fight for me uh just because it took some time Took some time to get the timing down and avoid his attacks and get the parries because Blade Wolf is really fast on the maps. Mm-hmm. Um, he bounces around quite a bit. And I was also just coming off Elden Ring. Um, so it has a wholly different, you know, parrying and blocking system. And it just took a second to get used to it. But you don't get a end, lot of fighting before this fight either. Like there's not a lot of real combat in the game. So it just kind of throws you in. Yeah. Yeah, and there's the combat before this battle is also not difficult. Like you can just kind of spam your attacks mm-hmm. and you'll get through everything. You don't have to worry about uh, parrying or too much prior to this. It's a classic Platinum Games style boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the fight, you will also be attacked by cyborgs and geckos while uh, Wolf kind of takes a break. He like perches up on a ledge above you um, and then sends some uh, soldiers after you that you'll have to contend with before you moved into the next phase of the battle. His key attacks are he has spring-loaded knives, he has the chainsaw on the top, on his tail, which he uses to attack, he has claw attacks, and he also has a manipulator arm, which we see with all the kind of like geckos and dwarf geckos have to uh, manipulate stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else you want to say about the battle before we move on? I mean, it, it is still straightforward. It's probably the most straightforward boss fight. You don't leave that area. It's just like a one-on-one fight and then you just kind of whittle this all down. It's not really complicated. Mm-hmm. So the thing that distinguishes Blade Wolf from the rest of the enemies or the rest of the bosses in this game is that he actually becomes part of the team shortly afterwards. After Raiden defeats Wolf, they have a codec chat about free will and Wolf's directives. Raiden then has Doctor recover and repair uh, Wolf, who will go on to join Raiden on his mission starting in R02 in Mexico. Uh, going forward, Wolf has decided to choose reconnaissance over combat, so he had his chainsaw removed, and he really isn't participating in any combat uh, in the rest of this game. He also had an augmented reality mask added, giving him like kind of wolfish ears and a similar mask to ride in when he drops down his visor. 
We have a couple of set of maps before we get to our next boss. Nothing that we, I think, really need to discuss in depth. But we start uh, encountering helicopters, which are referred to as hammerheads, and raven soldiers, which that's not the name in the game, but it's basically the like a uh, raging raven had all these like drone wing things in Metal Gear Solid 4, mm. and those things are just basically back here. Um, so we're seeing like already the wolf and uh, the raven uh, tech being repurposed for this game. And then, of course, the normal cyborg soldiers. Um, there's a couple geckos you'll have to fight. There's also a bridge set piece where I think the bridge is like blown out from under you and you kind of like run up the falling rubble, mm-hmm. um, kind of a quick time event. Uh, not not too, nothing too fancy, but it's fun. It changes up the gameplay a little. And since you're going to have these kind of set pieces throughout the game, it's good to have one here just so you kind of get used to it. Eventually, you make it to an abandoned hotel and you need to retrieve a commander's arm to um, get past the locked gate. Um, this is something that comes up a couple of times in this game. Like apparently a lot of uh, important biometric data and security clearance is kept in Cyborg's left arms. So at various points, you're going to have to find certain soldiers, cut off their arm, usually in blade mode, um, and then recover that arm so you can get through uh, various gates or security clearances. It's just a, uh, just the area where there's the um, there's like the one part in this game where there are like normal civilians running around. You have to try and save them. I think that's in this a area. little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's only in this area. But this is where like you would have a couple soldiers holding them up or just kind of running around as chaos is happening. Yeah, that's bit. that's like that feels to me like the only real remnant of the original game. Mm-hmm. It's left. It's like the only real strong remnant of that what that game was supposed to be because they as we said they originally were going to have all the enemies were going to be normal like genome soldiers or like normal metal gear soldiers and they realized how brutal it was to be slicing people and having red blood splinters ring out of them so <laughs> you know yeah no it, it it helps like take the edge off a little because it would be like one of the most violent games of all time yeah <laughs> if it was just straight up humans and there there is a bit of that that we'll get to uh more so next episode but um, it, it could be a completely brutal game if they didn't uh, uh, kind of make that change. Yeah. When Raiden eventually finds the refinery plant, he spies Andrei Dolzaev and Mistral, the next boss fight, who we will talk about here in a minute. Mistral knows Raiden's coming. She even blows him a kiss from quite a distance. Raiden now works through the plant full of Desperado cyborgs and Gecko before climbing to the top and finding Mistral who will be our next boss to discuss. Mistral, voiced by Sally Safiati, and her theme song is A Stranger I Remain. Mistral is the lone female member of the Winds of Destruction, which includes Sundowner and Monsoon, and they're also associated with the Desperado PMC. The word Mistral itself refers to dry northern winds in Central Europe, and this will be a standard for the naming conventions of all the Winds of Destruction members going forward. Though she's Liberian, she is white as snow. She has a puffy camo vest that vaguely reminds me of the pain from Metal Gear Solid 3, 
But underneath that, uh, she's basically wearing one of the Beauty and the Beast suits from Metal Gear Solid 4, full on with barcode and everything. She also has a special weapon, L'Entranger, or The Stranger, which is her polearm or whip weapon that's created by dwarf gecko arms, which makes it a cute little pun on polearm because it's just made up of arms. The dwarf gecko also um, will attach themselves to her back, so she has all these little hands on her, which gives her a very screaming mantis look from Metal Gear Solid 4 as well. And it's also worth noting that L'Entranger um, is also the same name as the Camus... Uh, Camus title, um, but I have not read any Camus. I am not a versed philosophy. I, th- I think her her weapon is my favorite one that you get from beating an enemy. It's just fun uh, to use. It is absolutely mine. Uh, is other than the sigh, which has some kind of special status effects on certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, I basically always use the polearm because it has the longest reach, um, and that just makes it a lot easier to take out most things. And I feel like it does more damage. Maybe Sundowner's blades do, but I got them so late in the game and wasn't really playing around with them at that point. Yeah, I don't like I don't like his his blades. Yeah, it's it's not the most fun. Um, and of course, because it's Metal Gear Solid, it's got to be a little skeevy to some degree. So, as per the codec calls. Uh, you learn that her breasts, due to their natural movement, are either originally human or are some kind of advanced chassis, but it's just believed that she has normal human breasts, and this is an important thing that they talk about with Doctor during this game. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Hideo came down from the ceiling and made sure they put that in the game. (laughs) He needed that, otherwise he was going to take Metal Gear off the title. So she is from Algeria, and she was orphaned during the Civil War in the 90s, which you know plays on the child soldier themes of Metal Gear Solid, but is also very equivalent to Raiden's own uh, history, because he came out of the Liberian Civil War from the same time. Uh, her parents were murdered, and she would go on to find her parents' murderers and butcher them. Then she would go on to become a regular soldier, an adult so- soldier. She served in the French Foreign Legion. She fought in Iraq, Afghanistan, um, and she really viewed killing was her calling. And then she would eventually meet one Senator Armstrong, who would eventually convince her to fight for something more. And one thing I flagged here is when she talks about Armstrong, it sounds a lot like how Sniper Wolf talked about Big Boss when she was dying, just referring to it as him, and then he came, and it kind of like changed her life around. So I like that parallel quite a bit. Um, She also has good relationships with Blade Wolf, which we mentioned, and I believe she's the first person in this game to actually refer to Raiden as Jack the Ripper, which is a persona that's going to become more and more prevalent as we go into the later parts of this game. Getting into the battle itself, I kind of went over uh, some of this because it plays with her design, but she attaches the gecko arms to herself uh, for attack mode. And then with her pole arm, she has several attacks, including cartwheel attacks and a grappling hook attack. Um, and then she'll also fire dwarf gecko cores at you, which are like basically fireballs or energy bursts that you'll just basically have to kind of run around and then move back in for battle. Yeah, I like also I like the refinery setting. I think it's fun to go around with like exploding shit everywhere. That's that's mm-hmm. cool. Um, I'm trying to think of like the the order you go in because it's like there's like the bit where you're like running along a uh, like a pipeline almost, and that's that's fun. It's like a, it's like a nice big area. It's easy. You can get away from her and like recover if you need to. It's not that. It's a nice like like kind of gradual ease you in boss more so than Blade Wolf because Blade Wolf's just sort of like hey here's parrying and you're like ah. But um, yeah. 
I had yeah. a lot less trouble with, I think I knocked her out in like one or two tries. Yeah. I mean, I, probably two. I, I don't think I beat anyone on the first try, but. Um, well, I know for, I know you def, there's, there's definitely one boss you wouldn't have beaten on the first try. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's, it's probably pretty low on the boss fights, but they're all good. This is a boss fight game and like, this is, it's a good boss fight. Um, I, I was thinking, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say it's got good vibes. The music's good. I love the environment, and it's not anything that's too frustrating. So you just yeah. get to like run around and hack and stuff. But you also have to at least semi know what you're doing to avoid the gecko and some of the attacks. Mm-hmm. So I just like, uh, seeing, it, like I like seeing the dwarf gecko too. They're fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This game uses uses them much better than MGS4 did. I think so too. Um, and I, you know, I have a. Uh, literature degree so I, it would be remiss of me not to mention because i was thinking about this so I, I don't know how much this would you know greek mythology is something you can't really transplant onto other cultures i know that it like they, they are aware of it but it's not the foundational sort of thing that it is for a lot of western culture but i was still thinking uh going through this again the other week about how um this is sort of a trope in greek mythology specifically in the perseus myths where he has to defeat the like evil woman character to to mature, um, and there's no other way. Like so, the, basically, the way that that uh, it's just maybe it's just how she's designed. She comes off chthonic to me, which is which is mainly like the non-Olympian Earth deities mm-hmm. in, in in Greek mythology. Mostly they're women, and mostly they are sinister forces that have to be defeated by a brave hero. Which you know the the subtext is that he he can. He has to, before he can become a true warrior, he has to defeat his sexual urges, defeat the 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 sinister, unwanted female sexual urges. But you know the male sexual urges are good. Keep those. That's that's how you bond with your fellow warriors. It's by mm. fucking like rabbits. Um, again, yeah. I know people. I imagine anyone listening to this knows that. But yeah, again, the Greek, the ancient Greeks, <laughs> loved fucking men. It was their favorite <laughs> thing. So like they, it's not some, it's not some new idea. Homosexuality is not some modern concept, but yeah, I just, I like the idea that, um, cause I don't know, I guess she is, there's a little bit of Medusa in her design. There's a little bit of like, just all the Chthonic, like snake gods. That's the really, the snake is like this is like an evil symbol in Greek mythology. And it specifically represents like nature and like venom and women. It's like the three things that they, they, they kind of, intertwine in there that's why the um this is it this asclepian staff is that the medical symbol yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's the why that exists that's why that exists yeah the twin snakes uh <laughs> that's why that exists though is to, is to represent like overcoming natural like like the the primordial natural evils of the world you know defeating sickness mm-hmm. um but yeah i i love i like the idea that raiden who has been a horny boy his whole life. I mean, he's been very, very much, uh, very horned up to become like a true warrior poet. He has to become like solid snake and reject the, reject snacks entirely because I don't think Rose is in the story mentioned anymore. She's not in the story, but she's like, you know, the beginning of the game, he's very concerned about his family. And now he's like, he's rejected that family. And now he's just here to kill. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's the first real part of his, him becoming Jack the Ripper, who is an asexual being. Actor Ripper does not know what that is. He, he only no likes fuck. He only likes cuts. He, he only likes. <laughs> he is only going to penetrate penetrate you with his sword. Right, right. I I, I love that. That I I love that. Um, 
every one of the bosses in this game kind of represents like him becoming more and more inhuman. Mm-hmm. Almost and begin um, until we get to the peak of it, which is monsoon, and then the rest of the game is him becoming more and more human again. <laughs> yeah, um, I was gonna say I think um, all the dwarf gecko arms on her back really give that Medusa mm. feel to it. It's like all the like snakes writhing. like in her head. Yeah, yeah, just writhing behind her. I think that's a very good uh, visual call out. Um, now that you say this, and I don't want to circle back to Metal Gear Solid Three, but I'm sure there's a Perseus Medusa analysis you can apply to Naked Snake versus the boss. Um, Because that's kind of the step he had to take on his way to becoming a true warrior or whatever. Yeah. Um, but no, I really like this. I mean, it's a very common. Literally, I don't want to call it a trope. His, his but, mother yeah. figure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it allows him to move on to the next stage of his. It's just an interesting trope historically, and through a lot of mythological sources, that you don't to become a man, you don't have to defeat. You you would assume I don't know the way the way we frame it a lot is you have to defeat your father figures to become mm-hmm. become a true mm-hmm. man. But historically, it's a lot of it's a lot of like fights, young warriors fighting older, not not, not necessarily maternal, but like older Eve quote unquote evil women is how they become tr- truly like they conquer that part of themselves, and that's mm-hmm. more Oedipal than I think we we, we are comfortable with now. <laughs> I mean, literally, it's literally almost literally edible because it's the same source. Right, know? right. But yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I I just kept thinking of that watching rewatching some of this stuff. So after she goes down, Raiden comes face to face with Dozayev, who's right pissed about Raiden killing Mistral. In classic terrorist fashion, he tries to suicide bomb Raiden to death, but Jack survives and heads for an LZ, or landing zone, an acronym you'll learn to love once we get to Metal Gear Solid B. (laughs) And that takes us to our next chapter. So you've got some kind of disguise lined up, right? Yep, all set. Hope so. You'd be a little conspicuous just walking the streets. Relax, Kev. I'll blend right in. Yeah. Well, just get into the sewer system ASAP. Hopefully, anyone who notices you will just mind their own business. You sure you want the K-9000 there along for this one? I had the good doctor make some adjustments along with the repairs. Remote piloting and AI wiping have been disabled. So yeah, I say let's throw them a bone. Wordplay. My exoskeleton resembles a K-9. K-9s enjoy bones. Amusing on two levels. Chapter 2, or R02 as it's referred to in this game, takes place in Guadalajara, Mexico. After Maverick had taken care of the coup in Abkhazia, they were contracted by an NGO investigating human trafficking and waste dumpage at a lab linked to Desperado, so Raiden and company continue to pursue them across the globe. And here we get to witness Raiden in a poncho and sombrero, an exceedingly good look for Jack in my opinion. It's a mariachi outfit, though, and not one that is specifically good for blending in. I guess Snake was always better at the stealth stuff anyways. (laughs) Two locals see Raiden, now with Blade Wolf in tow, making for the sewers, but they agree to pretend they didn't see anything. Just like the popular adage on Twitter, if you see someone shoplifting, no you didn't. Jack works through the sewers as Wolf scouts ahead, as is his MO in this game. Sadly, as far as I can tell, there is no way to pet Wolf in this game. I'm, a, I'm just assuming everyone sent Konami hate mail over this, and thus they made sure you could pet D-Dog in Metal Gear Solid V. 
Anyway, you're looking for the lab, and we have some underground maps to work through, which we'll kind of go over now. Raiden is too evil to pet a dog. He's too, he's too focused on killing. So in the sewer maps, we get our first encounter with Mastiff UGs, which are basically big gorilla-like cyborgs. Mm-hmm. Um, they have big arms that can grab you, and their attacks are pretty powerful that they can daze you pretty easily. Um, I found with these uh, fellas, I prefer to stealth around them. Um, you can sneak up behind them and do like a stealth kill. It's not like the best controls because sometimes it's hard to get that like that button to pop up to say you can do a stealth kill. But um, you do that, you can take them out in basically one hit. Um, if you engage them in melee, um, they can be kind of difficult, especially if you're fighting multiple at once. Um, I think one at a time, they're not too bad. But if you have to fight two or three at once, they can be kind of a pain. Yeah, this is this is one of the only places I think you can really stealth at all. Like it's this and the and the Denver like underground are like the only places yeah. where you really should be stealthing if you if you can. It breaks up the game yeah. a little bit. It's good. Yeah, it's a little bit different. They offer some catwalks, so there's a little bit of verticality mm-hmm. to do your stealthing above them, and then there's a little more just like garbage on the maps themselves, so you can kind of duck around and work around their patrols. So. Um, there's a fair amount of dwarf geckos also down here. Um, the little like balls with the three hands that we saw in Metal Gear Solid 4. Um, there are raptor UGs, which are just basically, um, you know, bipedal, small. They like are smaller than uh, normal gecko um, and a little bit quicker. Um, nothing specifically difficult, I would say. Um, and just along with that, there's also the Vodomercas, which are basically water strider UGs, which just kind of skim the surface of waters, but functionally behave very similar to the raptors and stuff like that. The most important thing that happens in the sewers is you meet George, a Guyanese 11-year-old who was swept up in Desperado's human trafficking operations, um, who, who happened to escape from the lab that they were holding the kids in. When we find George, he's being attacked by UGs and is scared off by Wolf, but Raiden eventually corrals him and takes him in. The kid speaks Guyanese Creole, which is an English-based language, uh, but it's kind of like jivey. I don't know what the correct way to say it is. So when you see the subtitles on screen, the subtitles include the Creole, which George is speaking, as well as the straight English translations, because um, if if you knew what he was saying without them, you know, best to you, you must know your shit. So George had escaped the lab, but because he didn't speak Spanish, no one else was able to follow him or keep up with him in terms of the other kids who were also imprisoned, but he is able to give Raiden information about how to get into the lab. And of course, the name George reminds Jack of Solidus, who went by the name of George Sears. And George is also apparently a huge Ninja, Ninja Turtles fan, uh, because when he meets Raiden, he says, go Ninja, go Ninja, go, as well as a Ninja Kawabunga, which if you grew up with the Ninja Turtles, those should all mean something to you. That's uh, the Virgin Chico versus the Chad George. <laughs> George also clues Raiden into what's going on at the lab. Basically, they are gutting little boys and harvesting their vitals. Raiden leaves George for Maverick agents to pick up while he works his way towards the lab. During this next set of maps, you discover the game's first cardboard box, and of course it comes with a codec conversation about where Raiden may have learned to use one to hide. Once in the lab, Raiden fends off some Desperado security before discovering a room full of brains. Like, actual brains, not in skulls, but with eyes. They belong to children and are being used to create even more cyborgs. 
Next comes a dwarf gecko puzzle. Raiden hacks one of them that the player then gets to pilot through a couple rooms, either working past the various sentries or neutralizing them with an electric shock. And he works his way to a data terminal at the other end, which involves hopping through a window uh, um, up on one of the rafters. In hacking the terminal, Doctor uncovers a video featuring the lab's head scientist, Sundowner, and a big man in a suit who we will later learn is Senator Armstrong. Armstrong being one of Brian's favorite characters, you better believe he basically has his own episode near the end of our coverage. And Senator's what you do have. You've already commenced the outline. The Sears program? Yep. Sending one old Georgie boy used on the kids in Liberia. The Georgie boy mentioned is, of course, George Sears, a.k.a. Solidus again, our second reminder of him in this chapter. We hear about the VR training the kids are undergoing being similar to what Solidus did in Liberia, in that they are basically creating an army of Raiden, so to speak, picking up the meme from Metal Gear Solid 2, where the system was learning to create an army of snakes. Parallels. Uh, Anything you want to say here before we move on? I think... Overall, like as a from a gameplay perspective, this is the lowest part of the game. Just like the like I, I mentioned the the stealth stuff earlier, and that's fine. But like the a lot of the hacking stuff and like the I, just like the way you have to like some of the, the levels are it's a sewer level. They're never that good. <laughs> this is this is definitely the, the the first time through the game the the part that I was like oh I don't know how I like this very much because I love the first the first chapter is great. First mission's great, this one's great, and as soon as you get to Denver, the game just kind of starts accelerating and does not stop until the end. So this is like the only real down period of the game. Yeah, I know I mentioned the rafters had a little bit of verticality, but everything is flat here. Yeah. Um, there isn't a lot, and um, there isn't enough, I, I don't want to say enough, but there isn't a lot of variance in like the enemies. So it's just basically, here's a new room with a bunch of guys to slash up, and then you kind of go into the next room. Um, which is, you know, it's fine, and this is still early in the game. Um, but I, I definitely would say this is probably the weakest stretch of the game. Um, you don't get to fight a specific boss at the end of it. Mm-hmm. That's just, yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not a. The Mexico part is is the is definitely the weakest chapter of this game. Yeah, even the highlight really, even though it's bookended by the adios amigos thing, and then the end of it is um, the the brains and and Armstrong stuff is good. Yeah, I was going to say the highlight is uh, riding in a mariachi outfit for me, mm-hmm. which is unlockable. So you can actually just play as it if you want to uh, going forward. Uh, one, one thing I picked up, which I don't see in a lot of games, uh, especially those uh, with hacking and using a USB stick, is they actually do the thing where um, Raiden tries to stick the USB stick in, but it's upside down and he has to turn it, mm-hmm. um, which you know I think we all experience every day. So the three men, Armstrong, Sundowner, and the head scientist, agree to shut down the lab, take what quote-unquote assets they have, and dispose of the unused children still in captivity, which moves right into his next goal, save the children. Courtney chimes in to let Raiden know that Maverick couldn't find George, the boy, in the sewers, which we'll get back to that in a minute. But first, a boss fight, of sorts. Our first encounter with a grad UG. So a grad, uh, grad is the Ukrainian word for hail. I don't know if that has any significance whatsoever, but the it's basically like a mini Rex, more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bipedal uh, mech, uh, unmanned mech, and it's based off old Soviet designs. 
Um, it has a mobile mode, which is basically it's Rex mode. It's on two legs and it's fighting and attacking you. But it also has a bunker mode where it kind of hunkers down, puts up its shields and becomes like kind of a more stationary um, object that you kind of have to cut through the shields and push it back before it goes back into its normal attack mode. Um, and while this is a boss fight here of sorts, um, this does become uh, the grads do become kind of a standard, I would say mini boss or sub boss going forward. They're not just like standard uh, enemy villains, um, but they are part of um, what's it called? Kind of the regular group of enemies yeah. you will see for the rest of this game. Yeah, the big heavy enemy, which is funny <laughs> because the the um, the massives are also heavy enemies. So there's a bunch mm -hmm. of those introduced here. You see a bunch of these guys in the DLCs, too. Post-fight, we get the team's report on the man in the suit. Colorado Senator Stephen Armstrong, and soon-to-be presidential candidate in 2020. He had been previously connected to World Marshal, the largest remaining PMC following the Guns of the Patriots incident. The game refers to the Big Five, which were the four Beauty and the Beast Corps-led PMCs, plus Liquid's Outer Haven. World Marshal is also the leader in cyborg development. Anything you want to get in here about Armstrong or the PMCs? I like that because I like that they cannibalized a lot of the old PMC tech. Mm -hmm. it, that's that's that tracks like a lot of the boss exclusive stuff is just widespread. <clears throat> that's because that's the theme. That's maybe the, the one of the single biggest themes of this series is um, escalation in arms proliferation mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah, so that's good. That's it, that proves again that even though Kojo did not write this game. A, it proves that he doesn't have to always write these things because he's maybe not a great writer. Um, and that, like, you know, people, it's not as though, like, as singular as his ideas are, it's not as though other people can't understand them and also apply them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Finally, Jack tracks down the kids, but they are behind a glass wall, and the chief scientist shows up with George as a hostage. The scientist offers to let one of them live if Ryden puts down his sword. George tells Raiden to fuck him up instead, and he cuts through George to kill the scientist, although George does survive this attack thanks to the cryopreservers that are in the lab they're currently in. Break that glass, and I'll blow his brains out. Surrender, or decide the needs of the many or the needs of the few. Raiden! Don't worry about me now. Quiet, pendejo! <laughs> Surrender! I won't ask again. George, are you sure? Hmm? Hmm. I'm ready. Me life now so precious. Ching! What if me can take this scunt to hell with me? Cállate! Raiden sets his sights on World Marshal Inc., located in Denver. 
but because of World Marshal Media, political and military connections, Raiden doesn't want to oppose them as a member of Maverick. Doctor is charged with safely recovering the cyborg brains and kids before the team wraps up south of the border. Anything you want to add before we uh, move on to Denver? We kind of talked about like I feel like this this, this is the the low point of the game. So mm-hmm. I just sort of yeah, it's it's fine. It just sort of ends. It's I don't know. I think the other thing about it is that none 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 of the stuff here is wrapped up. Like George, I think George is like the main focus of it, and then like. The cyborg brains come back. Armstrong comes back. Sundowner obviously comes back. So there's no resolution to anything that happens here. It's and and it's gameplay wise the weakest part of the game. So it's just yeah. That's I I was actually just really kind of shocked there isn't a boss fight ten this chapter. Yeah, you you expect it right? Yeah, yeah. It's a um, boss fight game. You know, I I could have done for maybe one more boss fight too. So yeah, um, you could have fit one more member in. I feel like mm-hmm. there's a spot for another. Well, especially because they they kind of position Monsoon as like second in command. It's like he's second in command of two people, <laughs> one of whom just joined. So it, it's a little weird, yeah. Right, right. That gets us to our third chapter, R03, The Raid in Denver. We are only going to cover part of this chapter today so that we can bundle a good chunk of the major bosses next time out. Denver is also where the brains discovered in Mexico are shipped to complete VR training and fully integrate them into the cybernetic soldiers. We get a couple name drops here I want to highlight. First, the President of the United States at the time is named Hamilton. We may dig into that a bit later, but at least this game was developed long before Lin-Manuel Miranda did the musical, so there's no relation there, thankfully. Yeah, thank God. (laughs) We also hear about Rosemary and their kid, who are apparently safe in New Zealand somewhere, probably touring the Shire, who knows. Raiden drives into the Mile High City with Wolf riding shotgun, which is just kind of fun. Doggo likes to put his head out the window and feel the breeze. Raiden is accosted and eventually forced out by the police, who also are cyborgs now in this world. Of course. Police always get leftover military tech. Exactly. I think that's very part of the themes that are going in this game. So we'll discuss the Denver intro maps to kind of wrap up today. Uh, Wolf kind of scouts ahead, as he normally does, and you're basically working through the streets fighting cyborgs' cops. Um, You will have to eventually fight two grad uh, UGs on the way as well. And during the these maps, Boris is bugging you on the line about whether Raiden should have quit and if he had to really destroy everything that he's been doing. Um, and Raiden says he wants to prevent another generation of Jack the Rippers, which appears to be what World Marshall is building towards. 
Boris then agrees to support Raiden, but using encrypted channels to obscure Maverick's involvement in this whole operation. Which sort of neuters that entire plot point, but yeah, I know. Yeah, it's like, whatever. You're not (laughs) going to not have a support staff in another game, so. Yeah, or you would make a big thing of it. Like, if they did, like, a chapter where it's like, you have no support, no conversation, Mm -hmm. that could be cool, but it just kind of feels unnecessary here because I'm quitting Maverick, but anyways, Maverick's going to help you out. Like, Hitman does a similar... Not that anyone quits, but Hitman 3 does a similar bit where over the course of the game you sort of lose, like, a lot of your support people leave to the extent that there's a mission where Agent 47 basically has to do the briefing to himself and he's just kind of (laughs) alone. And it's, like, actually really effective. It's a very effective way of doing that kind of thing. And, uh, like, he does... That's, you know, that's how you do that kind of thing and and not just, like... I, I can't condone this, but I'll still help you. Like, okay. Thanks. Yeah, the only defense I can say is that in a way that's kind of James Bondy in a way, because it's like, yeah. oh, I'm going rogue from MI6. But anyways, here's Q, um, and here's Money Penny, <laughs> and oh, by the way, I'm kind of on board with you going rogue. So it's like, okay, whatever. Every mission of boss movie, the hunt goes rogue, <laughs> which just means I, IMF has been disavowed. How many times are they going to disavow this fucking guy? <laughs> um. So through these early maps, you fight through a couple buildings. You eventually run to the rooftops to minimize the fighting as part of the narrative, not necessarily as a gameplay strategy. (laughs) And then you'll also have, once again, similar to Mexico, uh, another set of underground maps uh, working through train tunnels. And this is where they're just full of the Mastiffs. Um, And this is a place where there's like a lot of boxes and stuff you can kind of work around. Um, So you can kind of avoid combat or just try to stealth the Mastiffs so you don't have to actually engage them in combat. Yeah, I like I like the whole city area. I like the city. It has um, aesthetically very similar to like there's a late two thousand or early early twenty tens, like two thousand eight to like two thousand fourteen fifteen. There was like a style of future city that was in a lot of games, like Halo three ODST and this and Spec Ops. They all just kind of look like this, and I, I like I like that. They all look like this, and there's nothing happening in them at all because the machines could not handle like moving cars and stuff. <laughs> But yeah, I like that. I enjoy I enjoyed that look. I like how Denver looks. It looks cool. It looks like that's the trade-off, you know. That's the thing. Why would people accept uh, cyborg police running everywhere and, and forever wars? Oh, because they get to have cool LED screens everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's no bear has no bearing on real world events at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that is where we're gonna leave off for today, as I really want to bookend the next episode with Jetstream Sam who is about to confront Raiden with his own violence in true Metal Gear fashion.
mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsansfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support Podcast Sans Frontiers at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, which Manuclear Bomb, hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering The Lord of the Rings over at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. I'm Brian. America's diseased, rotten to the core. Yeah. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, the war still rages within. Looking down on-